This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03, Thursday afternoon, December 1st. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour, presented by the Village of Bedford Park. I'm Rob Hart. Medical researchers are hailing what's seen as a breakthrough in treating Alzheimer's disease. We'll cover that in our next segment. But right now, a rise in job cuts is helping fuel the phenomenon known as career cushioning. Let's learn more about it from Michelle Reisdorf, Chicago jobs expert with Robert Half based in Chicago. Michelle, thanks for joining us today. How can one cushion their career, Michelle? Well, I think they just want to make sure that they put themselves in a position to find work. Should they find themselves laid off or, you know, maybe looking again. And some of the key things to do, obviously, would be, you know, polishing up your resume, especially if you haven't looked at it or touched it in a long time, as well as really kind of connecting with your network again. You know, uh, several years ago, uh, I found myself uh, on the receiving end of that unfortunate uh, conversation in a uh, corner office. And one of the regrets I had about that situation was I should have seen the clues leading up to that moment and started a lot earlier than I did, because the process of just ramping up the job search took about a month. And it it saves you a lot of time and trouble if you start uh, getting yourself in that mindset now. Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of people have been lightly kind of doing that as they've heard that the job market is so great and, you know, they've been kind of putting feelers out there. But you're right. You know, when you think about the time it takes to really go back and look at, you know, all the projects you've worked on, the successes you've had, certifications you've earned, just to get that resume updated, um, you know, could take, you know, a good couple of weeks in itself. And then, you know, getting reconnected with your networks isn't as simple as one call anymore. Um, You know, you might find yourself having set up multiple meetings or making multiple phone calls to make sure that you really are reconnected um, so that you can count on those referrals should you need them. And then from a mental health standpoint, when does preparation cross over into paranoia? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think it's I always say always brush up your resume, right? So that it it doesn't become that paranoia moment. And, you know, as long as you continue to do a good job at work and really communicate with your boss about your work, um, your accomplishments, you know, kind of what it is you bring to the company, I think there's no need for paranoia. Um, But just in case, you know, that constant updating kind of keeps you, you know, ready to go should that time come. And then how far should you go in in just keeping your keeping all of your contacts fresh? Because if you're sending some feelers out just to kind of keep your network up to date and just let them know that you're there, uh, is it possible that uh, you're going to start getting overtures uh, while you're still in your job? Yeah, possibly. You know, I think at, at 
I look at keeping your connections as a constant. It shouldn't just be about a job search, right? All of us are in business to make our businesses better and being connected helps that in all cases. And so, you know, but then again, communicate if it, that overture becomes too intense, what you do want to make sure is, you know, you let your connections know, thank you for your assistance, or, you know, I'm in a good place now so that, you know, it doesn't go looked upon as wasted effort or, you know, unreturned communication for their efforts. Michelle Reisdorf, Chicago jobs expert with Robert Half, based in Chicago. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up, a new drug is seen as a breakthrough in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Money Talks, as the WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. The first drug shown to slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease is heading toward regulatory approval. We're joined by Bruce Japson, Chicago-based healthcare writer for Forbes. Bruce, thanks for joining us today. Tell us all about this new drug, starting with uh, how you pronounce the name. Oh, goodness, you would ask me that, wouldn't you? It's um, Lacanamab. It's uh, manufactured by Asai and Biogen. Um, and it's one of those things. It's, it's, I, it's not headed for FDA approval. That, that's for sure, not yet. But um, in Alzheimer's, they have had, there have been so many heartbreaking failures over the years. Uh, and a lot of Alzheimer's treatments have also targeted this protein in the brain beta amyloid, which builds up in people with Alzheimer's, sort of like a plaque. And they've had drugs that have gone after that to see if they could reduce the plaque, eliminate the plaque, have not been successful. But in this drug, in early stage trials, you always have to couch that. I mean, this, uh, Alzheimer's, as we know, everybody knows somebody who has had Alzheimer's. Um, it, does sl- it slows the um, cognitive decline in some patients. Now, the good news is, is that when a study like this comes out, then they can say, hey, we, we see some, or we see a little bit of promise here in some patients, so let's move this down the road, you know, and move it into another phase of patients, a larger study, if you will. There are some side effects, some, um, some uh, brain swelling and, and uh, bleeding that, that they said should be studied further, but it is sort of a, in a field where there has been no hope, there, there is a, a little glimmer of, of hope here. Um, there was a researcher at University of Pennsylvania that was quoted widely in a, in a bunch of different publications. The benefit is real. So, too, are the risks. And then uh, for those of us who might be used to the emergency use authorization of the various COVID vaccines, yep. what's Correct. the regulatory process governing this particular Alzheimer's drug? Does it have to get the full FDA approval or can it be used via an EUA? Well, it depends on on what we show here. So let's just say in the next year or so, this drug gets into a wider pool of patients. I mean, we know in the pandemic that the vaccines were tested on lots and lots and lots and lots of people. They were shown to be safe and effective. So they were able to move this down the road awfully quickly, right, and get emergency uh, uh, use authorizations. Now, sort sort of like then the clinical trial, we were all the guinea pigs. We were all the on the trial. Fortunately, there were not problems, right? So with Alzheimer's, there is no cure for Alzheimer's. There are treatments out there that 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 treat the symptoms of Alzheimer's, but that does not reverse or slow the course of the disease. If this gets into a stage in the next two years where it's showing to work in a lot more patients, there's going to be then pressure on the FDA to do something like they did with the um, 
vaccines and the diagnostic tests. So if you're listening out there, I don't want people are probably thinking of oh, that Bruce Jepson guy at Forbes is such a wet blanket. I'm not trying to be a wet blanket on this in the sense that it's working, but, but we've got to see more uh, studies in broader patient pools to see how it works further. Now, you know, you're not alone in in being a wet blanket here. A number of researchers <laughs> say that even if everything goes perfectly, it's not revolutionary, but it will buy researchers some time for the next one that could be the game changer. For sure. And then the other thing is, which, of course, everybody hates, is the fact that it has to be then um, uh, okayed by insurance. I mean, these drugs are not pills and capsules that cost, um, you know, a few dollars or a few few pennies to make. These are you go in for uh, infusions um, every two weeks. They're biotech drugs. They're very expensive. I don't know what this would cost, but it's not going to be five bucks a pill. It's going to be, you know, an infusion that's going to be tens of thousands of dollars a year. And so we had a situation earlier this year where there was an Alzheimer's treatment. Um, it did uh, uh, did do treated symptoms and so forth. Not a game change or anything like that. But the uh, Medicare decided to sharply limit the coverage of this other Alzheimer's drug called um, Autohelm, um, citing that there were ro- more risks and an unclear benefit. So this has got a, a long way to go. But the good news is is that in some patients it's showing to work. When we get in the next year or so, and these trials are ongoing, they're probably already thousands of patients, uh, tens, tens of thousands of patients in these trials. So we're definitely going to hear more about this next year. Bruce Japson, Chicago-based healthcare writer for Forbes. Thanks for joining us to talk about the progress of this latest Alzheimer's disease drug. Coming up next, the oil market bracing for a major disruption. The only program dedicated to currency events. You're listening to the WBBM Noon Business Hour. The European sanctions on Russian oil are set to begin on Monday. Let's discuss the potential impact on markets with Phil Flynn, senior market analyst with the Price Group based in Chicago. Phil, thanks for joining us today. How do these sanctions differ from the sanctions that have already been put in place on Russian oil? These are going to be more strict. It's going to be a concerted effort to buy oil from any other source but Russia. Um, and at the same time, they're trying to institute a price cap for people that still have to buy oil from Russia. So when you put it all together, it really is a mismatch that probably isn't going to hurt Russia at all. And because of all the confusion of how to implement this situation, it's going to cause prices probably to go higher. And it sounds like the real uh, uh, sticking point is that nobody really knows what Russian oil is selling for these days. Uh, There are some good guesses. One number was potentially uh, $48 a barrel, uh, according to one analyst. And some of the holdouts to this uh, price cap deal by the European Union say if you land at $62 a barrel, actually Russia comes out ahead. They do, and that's the situation. I mean, if you look at the Russian crude price, I mean, traditionally the average price is below sixty, right, or it's right about sixty. So, to to give them sixty dollars a barrel is almost like not having a price cap at all. And you know, because Russian oil is a hot property, uh, there are countries like China that are buying massive quantities at a discount to their normal price because they want to continue to sell oil. Um, So really, this is just a situation that is going to 
make uh, the governments look like they're doing something when really there's not a lot they can do to stop the flow of Russian oil, nor stop the profits that Russia is getting from selling that oil. Now, the price we pay for gas in America is determined by refinery capacity, but also by the uh, number set at the, the West Texas Intermediate number. Uh, that's the domestic market. Uh, the Russian oil price caps or the reintroduction into the world market uh, would affect the Brent crude, which is the worldwide number. Uh, What type of uh, impact on the markets will we see uh, not only on the international scene, but domestically uh, if this deal were to go through? Well, I I think it's going to cause our prices to go up as well. I mean, when you look at the global energy market, it's about as tight as it's been in a generation. There's no room for error into you know, assume that we're going to be untouched by the bad policies in Europe. It's just not the case. In fact, we hear that from President Biden, you know, said it's Putin's price hike. It's not our fault. So, you know, obviously what happens over there is going to impact us here. But I think from a larger issue, uh, when we look at this price drop that we've seen in gasoline prices, um, really, we have to congratulate the U.S. refining industry. It's amazing what they've done with you know, low capacity to try to build up supplies and bring down prices. I really want to pat them on the back because I didn't think they could do it, but uh, they've done things that are utterly amazing when it comes to gasoline production and diesel production the last couple of weeks. Phil Flynn, Senior Market Analyst with The Price Group based in Chicago. Thanks for joining us today. Still ahead in Technology Thursday, Elon Musk updating his brain implant technology. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. Police in Buffalo Grove are set to reveal more about the deaths of five people found inside a home yesterday. The president of France will be the guest of honor at a state dinner in Washington tonight. Technology Thursday, Elon Musk says he's going to install a chip in his brain as soon as they're available for use in humans. Also on the tech front, leaders in the city of San Francisco vote to let police use robots that can kill. WBBM Business, the markets are lower. The Dow is down 279 points. The Nasdaq is down 7. The S&P 500 is down 11. 31 degrees right now in Chicago under mostly sunny skies. Feels like 23 going up to 38 today. It's 1231. Topping our news at the half hour. Two children are among Five people found dead yesterday at a home in Buffalo Grove. Officers were called to the house in the 2800 block of Acacia Terrace and discovered the bodies after making a forced entry. More details are expected during a news conference set to begin at 2 o'clock this afternoon. President Biden is hosting the leader of France at an official state visit. The president welcomed his French counterpart with military honors in a formal ceremony on the South Lawn. France is our oldest ally. Mr. Biden said the two nations again find themselves standing for democracy 
as Vladimir Putin brings war back to Europe. Et cette histoire commune, Emmanuel Macron said the U.S. and France must be aussi, brothers in arms in the fights against autocracy, climate change, and hate speech. It is our shared destiny to respond to those challenges together. Stephen Portnoy, CBS News, Washington. It's 12.32 as the noon business hour continues, presented by the Village of Bedford Park. Markets are in the red today. We're joined by Art Hogan, Chief Market Strategist at B. Riley Financial, based in New York. Art, thanks for joining us today. Is this simply a case of uh, traders giving back some of the gains uh, from yesterday's rally? Yeah, that's Rob, I think that's exactly what it is. We had a, a real sharp reaction to um, what Jay Powell had to say yesterday in his, in his speech at the Brookings Institute. And you had the Dow Jones Industrials up about 740 points and the S&P you know, up 2%, and then, and the NASDAQ was up about 4%. So it's not surprising to see some... Uh, Mild pullback as we are in a wait-and-see mode for another uh, important data point tomorrow, which is the jobs number. And the jobs number is going to be instructive as to how we think about monetary policy going forward. If, in fact, the jobs number comes in as expected, close to 200,000 jobs created in the month versus 260,000 the month before, that'll mean what the Fed has been doing so far is starting to work. And and so I think the markets are sort of taking a wait-and-see mode, maybe taking some money off the table and waiting to see you know, what, what uh, news we learn tomorrow morning at 8.30. So does that mean uh, we could potentially see a big drop at the open tomorrow if uh, the jobs report comes in higher than that 200,000 consensus number? Yeah, I wish that wasn't the case, Rob, but it's that binary. We, we, you know, we are living on every important data point, and, and today we got a reading on the, uh, the Fed's favorite inflation data, which is the personal consumption expenditure, PCE, and that came in right on the nose with consensus, and that wasn't really a market mover. But tomorrow, if we had a hot jobs report and the unemployment rate uh, went down instead of going up, um, I certainly think that the, the market would take that as negative news. And that's, while that's good news for those of us looking for a job, that's bad news for the economy slowing down enough to uh, get, a, get on top of inflation. It, it's it's always just kind of mind-boggling to me, remembering the months and, quite frankly, years after the Great Recession, where uh, the the recovery in the employment num in the employment market was just so agonizingly slow. And you would hear people talk about you know maybe promising uh, jobs growth of over two hundred thousand jobs a month or two hundred fifty thousand jobs a month, and people would say slow down there. That just seems like that seems almost impossible. And now it's a fact of life. It's really weird that you're getting those numbers consistently. And it's, and it's disappointing. I know it's, it's, it's really counterintuitive thinking, but we know the things that the Fed can control um, are, are, are basically two things, right? So the Fed can control interest rates, which definitely slows down the housing market. We've seen that already. And the housing market clearly got overheated during the pandemic. The other thing they can control is is the pace of economic growth and demand for things like people hiring. And, and, and clearly that hasn't actually taken a bite yet, right? We haven't really, that's the Fed's biggest conundrum is that while we know things are slowing, the employment situation, the labor market remains tight. And unless and until we see that loosen up, um, then the, the Fed's going to have to continue to be pretty stalwart in their uh, raising of rates. But the good news is we saw the JOLTS number, which is just the basically how many jobs are open, and that came down pretty significantly on a month-over-month basis. So we're starting to see some of those layoffs. We've heard from all these companies, about 84,000 layoffs have been announced in technology alone, starting to show up in the unemployment uh, roles, and, and I think that eventually shows up in the non-farm payroll number. Hopefully that starts to permeate into the news tomorrow.
if they, if um are, are, is the employment or the jobs market though uh, so tight that maybe you won't see mass layoffs like we did two years ago or fourteen years ago? You'll just see a lack of hiring. I think that is likely to be where we land, right? So obviously unemployment is uh, you know uh, almost a historic low, right? So to go from that to a more normalized level, let's say we went from three and a half to call it four and a half percent, that would still be the historic full employment level. And I certainly think that the the norm is going to be much more to your point, uh, there's going to be fewer new hires and a lot of those job openings likely will disappear. But I don't know that we're going to have massive job losses because we still have you know more jobs open than we have people looking for them. A lot of that has to do with demographics and how many baby boomers actually retired during the pandemic and how many more are going to retire and getting to retirement age. So we don't have enough workers. Immigration laws are certainly a part of that process. But uh, clearly, I think that's going to be the case. I think it's going to be much more of a soft landing and perhaps a, a mild loosening up of the labor market versus – you know, seeing unemployment go from, you know, where we are now to, you know, call it 6 or 7%. I just don't think that's in the offing next year. Art Hogan, Chief Market Strategist, B. Riley Financial, based in New York. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up next in Technology Thursday, brain implant chips that could potentially change lives. It's- because money matters. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's Technology Thursday. Billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk is revealing the latest updates to his company's brain chips, saying he's going to install one in himself when they're ready. We welcome in Shelley Palmer, CEO of the Palmer Group and founder of the Med Academy based in New York. Find him on Twitter at Shelley Palmer. Shelley, thanks for joining us today. Before we talk about the Elon Musk Neuralink, I have an idea for an invention, and it might be an especially killer app uh, following the last month or so of Twitter discourse, and that is a, a device that uh, strips all the bluster from Elon Musk statements uh, just to see if the idea has any actual merit. You know, how much of this is just uh, bluster and marketing and uh, how much of this is an actually uh, a practical technology. Um, taking away all of the P.T. Barnum aspects of it, is there a there there when it comes to these brain implants? Yes, very much so. And I think what's important to understand is that this is not the only uh, approach to this particular problem, nor is it going to be necessarily the right one. There are a couple of different ways to think about what he's trying to do. They are going to put sensors directly onto your brain, directly onto neurons in a small area of your brain, and then you are going to train yourself to do certain things when those neurons are fired. You'll be able to learn to fire those neurons. At Case Western Reserve University, they're doing something else. They're saying, you know what? Your central nervous system uh, goes from your brain to your extremities. They're putting sensors um, in other parts of your body, like on your arm, and uh, wiring them into the nerves in your arm so that they can uh, let you train yourself to use a prosthetic hand with the same exact um, thoughts and the same exact involuntary um, muscle uh, commands, if you will, that you would use in normal life. So there's a lot of different approaches to this. Neuralink is onto something very important, which is how to give agency to the disabled, but also how to let us have more magical powers. You know, Alexa gives you certain telekinetic powers. You can turn on lights. You can turn on 
music and stereo, you know, you can do all kinds of things with just your voice. Imagine if you didn't need your voice, if you could just do it by thought. So we can get there from a sensor perspective. How you get there, um, you know, this is one of the ways, and it's experimental now, but there have been great, great, great um, experiments done with really good results. So while there's plenty of bluster, Rob, there really is, there is a there there. Now, when 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 thinking about, well, you can have a, put a chip in your brain. Uh, if if you are a uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation fan, uh, you no doubt are now imagining a future in which uh, everybody becomes Locutus of Borg, and uh, we we will be in a future in which uh, Resistance mm-hmm. is indeed futile. But um, this does provide some hope uh, to people who may be paraplegic, to people who uh, may be blind, that uh, one day a neural technology that will exist that will allow them to walk and allow them to see. We are electrochemical devices. We uh, definitely run on electricity. Sensors are capable of sensing the electrochemical impulses that we create. Uh, Artificial intelligence is able to interpret those and help us and assist us. It's not that resistance is futile. It's that we already use machines to help us do everything. It's just a question of the interface. There are way deeper questions than we can get into now, which is if I can shake somebody's hand across the country and feel them shake my hand, what does it mean to be human? What is it to have agency? If I can actually sense the world around me but don't need to be there, what are these implications for virtual worlds and what are the implications for augmented reality? We can go really deep, and usually that conversation is science fiction, but right now it's almost science fact and needs to be taken for what it is. A lot of new things are about to happen in a lot of new ways, so get ready. Shelley, we have 60 seconds. Can you tackle all of these existential issues that philosophy philosophers have been uh, trying to uh, debate for centuries now? Actually, now you have 40 seconds. So, but, but before we go, let's talk about the ethics, though, of medical testing. And that is, for this to work, someone is going to have a chip installed in their brain. And that someone is not named Elon Musk. And how do you do that ethically and in a way in which uh, the person who is your test subject uh, does not suffered debilitating effects because there are insurance programs for other forms of medical testing. This seems like a very different area. This is highly experimental. I think it would do everyone well to, if you're interested in this, cut away the Elon Musk hype and go on Google and look at the medical research that has been done with sensors and prosthetics. Uh, To date, it will fascinate you. And as you add the new technologies that we are all experiencing, like generative AI and other forms of machine learning that enhance our capabilities by millions of times, the way the steam engine enhanced our muscles by thousands of times, these technologies enhance our brains by thousands of times. So we're in a really good place. And while this sounds crazy, it's not crazy. So I would implore people to just do a little research and Elon, yeah, he's turning into a little bit of a circus, but don't don't fall prey to that. This is serious science. It's going to help a lot of people. Shelley Palmer, CEO of the Palmer Group, founder of the Med Academy based in New York. Follow him on Twitter at Shelley Palmer. Join us at this time tomorrow for Entrepreneur Friday and the, uh, let's call it the Utopia Dystopia segment of the Noon Business Hour continues. Coming up next, the debate over the use of killer robots by police. Your best stock option. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. 
San Francisco's Board of Supervisors has voted to allow the city's police to deploy robots equipped with explosives. Let's discuss the decision with Paul Hockman, president of Humongous Media and former tech editor for the Today Show based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Uh, this was a, a debate that took place in San Francisco this week, but with the San Francisco Board of Supervisors voting to go ahead with the idea. Now, we've we've had the, the ethical debate over using drones by the U.S. military uh, in military operations has been going on for 20 years. But now that debate has uh, reached our shores. This is now involving domestic law enforcement. That's exactly right. And, and you know what? The debate, though it's been going on for 20 years, is roughly around the same question. Namely, how comfortable are human beings giving up control uh, over lethal or potentially lethal situations to machines? And the, the Board of Supervisors is a, apparently a contentious hearing. Uh, eight and eight to three in favor of allowing the police to outfoot robots with lethal uh, lethal elements, basically tools that could be used uh, to disable or kill uh, someone or some ones who are threatening the public. And and once again, this is the second time on the show I'm, I've brought up Star Trek, but uh, there were a number of episodes of the original series in which the uh, ethics of this type of technology was the the crux of the episode. There was the one episode where the two planets were uh, going to war via computer, and then if you were a casualty, you had to report to be disintegrated. And then there was the other episode where the uh, the, the super scientist uh, creates the computer that would make uh, starship crews unnecessary until that computer goes haywire and killed a bunch of people. So this has de- right. been a debate that's been around for, at the very least, 50 years about should we distance ourselves from the violence we want to inflict on each other. That's exactly right. In fact, I mean, there was a pretty famous movie in the late 70s called War Games with Matthew Broderick, where Matthew Broderick unwittingly uh, logged into uh, a computer that had, the military had allowed to take over control of the nuclear, uh, the nuclear codes and also nuclear launches. And so and of course, chaos ensues when the computer you know, gets it wrong. At any rate, what get wrong, though, that's the key element here. The question that everybody's asking in a situation like this and has, to your point, have been asking for a long time is are where where is the autonomy? Where is the decision making? Does the machine make decisions or have you programmed the machine to make decisions in difficult situations? Um, generally speaking, people are more comfortable if a human being still, regardless of the fact they're all flawed, has some control over that, in this case, robot. The easy example, the sort of nobody really questions the ethics example, is that there's somebody threatening, up to, threatening to blow up the city, they're inside a building, they're refusing to come out, they're gonna press the button, it's gonna go, and if you send in a bunch of officers, uh, you, they'll probably die. Whereas if you send in a robot, there's a chance you could disable that terrorist in that, in that scenario. Um, so that's clearly a benefit. You, as, and by the way, people have been talking about this for uh, fire, firefighters, if there is a way to rescue people or assess that if there are people inside a burning building to be rescued, that's a great situation for a robot. In this case, though, that, that's saving lives. In this case, they're deciding, can we send a machine in to kill someone? And that's a very difficult question to answer. Paul Hockman, president of Humongous Media, former tech editor for the Today Show based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thanks for joining us today. You'll find past programs and later today a podcast of this hour at WBBMNewsRadio.com and the Odyssey app. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? 
Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.